you, you learn how to be a general contractor and fix things. You're a janitor. You're a promoter. You're a, you're a digital marketer. You're a host. You're, you know, you're all of you're those head things. Of security. You're head of security, toilet plunger, uh, whatever it may be. But you do what you do to make the show happen and make it a good experience. And yep. so. You're listening to music promoter, music venue owner, music producer, restaurant owner, business owner, Josh Baker, talking about his life in music and how Indianapolis can build off its great music history on this episode of Michael Loves Indie. Hey friends, welcome back to Michael Loves Indie. So bear with me for a second. If you made a short list of individuals who have increased Indianapolis's national musical and or artistic profile over the last two decades, you would have to have Josh Baker at or near the top of that list. Josh Baker is a friend of mine, someone I've known for 20 years, and he's been a record label owner, a music promoter, a music venue owner, a restaurant owner, many, many other things, who not only has brought national acts to Indianapolis, helped develop the careers of local and regional artists to help them go national, but he's also taken great public spaces like Garfield Park and turned them into national music venues. Josh's story is truly an entrepreneur story, one of hustle, and one of my biggest takeaways from this conversation is just do what you love and just stay at it and stay at it and stay at it and good things will happen. Um, again, the conversation is somewhat self-explanatory. I won't go into Josh Baker's long bio. You can Google him. You can read more about him if you Google MOKB Presents or if you Google his club, The Hi-Fi in Indianapolis, a club where I've seen dozens of shows. I've been fortunate to play there with my group. And anyway, uh, this conversation is as much about Indianapolis as it is about Josh Baker's life and the reasons he got into music, but also his hopes to build an Indianapolis that is more inclusive, more recognized nationally with more opportunities for artists across many, many genres, uh, building on the great musical history that we have in our city. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with my great friend, Josh Baker. Um, It is right after 4th of July... In the summer of 2022, first question is, do you feel like you survived the nuclear holocaust? <laughs> yeah, I think we did. Um, I guess it depends on what day you ask us. Yeah. But I think in general, you know, we're, we're, we're proud to be here. Put a lot of hard work in. And, you know, is it perfect? Probably not. But it's, uh, it's a substantial change from where we were. And, and we'll, get, we'll get into your life, your life story. But one thing I've noticed just as a fan and through frequent conversations with you, but I want to, I want to see if this, if this matches reality, it feels like, you know, 2020, no one knows what's going on. Everything's shut down, very restrictive. Things kind of open up in 20, the latter half of 21, you know, COVID comes back. It seems like there's a pretty strong rebound in early 2022, but then through conversations with you and others, I've realized there's been a little bit of a hesitation lately that like there's all these touring artists and there's so much going on, but that's actually had a detrimental effect on the audiences. Correct. Okay. Yeah. And that's something, you know, that's, that's an accurate assessment. Um, we've been seeing that now 
I'd say probably since early May, um, mid mid to late May, maybe right when a lot of the outdoor things started kicking up, you know, your, your things up at the amphitheaters and the bigger outdoor type stuff, uh, I think initially was just more of a, there's so much going on type of a thing. And so I think our brains were pretty pre-programmed after coming out of pandemic that there, there weren't a lot of things going on. And so we didn't have as many choices to make. And then all of a sudden now you have 30 choices and, you know, it's three nights of fish. It's, you know, all the, you know, it's Lumineers here and it's the Black Keys there and it's, you know, lawn shows and White River shows and festivals. And it's just, my brain just kind of shuts down when all that yeah. noise starts happening. I'm like, I'll stay home. And you know, so that I felt, I kind of felt that too. I think a lot yeah. of consumers felt that same way. And when you say we, for people who don't know you or haven't met you, um, can you give people a, a snapshot of your many hats that you wear? Because you are a venue owner, you're a promoter, you're a digital marketer. Could you give people who've never met you just a, an, a, a, a quick snapshot of the businesses? Sure. Yeah. I mean, as a, uh, co-owner, you know, I have, I have partners that are involved in this with us um, and have helped us build it. But Hi-Fi is, you know, our venue. That's a, a 400 capacity traditional venue. We sell tickets, we sell concessions, um, put on great shows. And then we have the Hi-Fi Annex, which is kind of a supplementary to the Hi-Fi, which is a byproduct of the of, of something we built during the pandemic that stuck around. Um, the outdoor space with capacity. 900, around 900 okay. capacity. Yep. Um, and then we have our, our, our small showcase room called, which we call the Lo-Fi Lounge. It's upstairs. It does a few shows here and there. So those three things kind of combine under the Hi-Fi umbrella of our venue, our rooms. And then as a promoter, you know, we go, we produce shows outside of those rooms, which include a lot of the things that are happening at Garfield Park. Um, we're now also booking other rooms. We're doing a five-show series at the uh, Nickel Plate District Amphitheater in Fishers. We're booking the Clyde Theater in Fort Wayne. Oh, wow. Um, those are all kind of service-related type things that we've been able to grow. Um, we produce a lot of shows at the Vogue uh, in the wintertime. Um, that, those are all kind of under the MOKB umbrella. Um, and then we also do some, some concession work. Uh, so we, we handle the ticketing logistics for the, for the gates for Indy Pride, and we also handle the concessions for Indy Pride. Um, and then we handle the concessions at Garfield Park. So those are and kind of, do three one seven. You built that up over a long time. Yeah, and so do three one seven was something we built over I don't know, about five years, and then um, kind of sold that back to do stuff during early days of the pandemic. Okay, um, because that, that that kind of needed a reboot, um, and there weren't any events, so there weren't any revenue really. Yeah. So we were kind of um, you know parsing things off that weren't really part of our core business so we could focus on those things. And yep. so that was able to kind of revert back to, to do stuff. It still continues on and it's great that it's still here. It's just one less thing that we kind of have to worry about on a day-to-day basis now. Yeah. Um, you know, and then, and then, then looking forward, you know, kind of all the ancillary things we're working on a restaurant um, down here in Fountain Square right next to our venue, which was never wanted to be restaurant owners, but strategically the space opened up and, and it was, it was something that we wanted to, to keep adding to the experience for our concert goers and, um, always working on lots of other things um, in Indianapolis and beyond. Um, but that's, you know, getting our core business back on track has been our, our primary focus. So. so speaking of core business, I met you in 2001 or 2002 through mutual friend Joe Giordano. Shout out to Joey G. <laughs> um, you are from Shelby County, southeast of Indianapolis. Is that right? Yeah, New, New Palestine area, but it's... oh. 
across across the across the road in Shelby County. Okay, okay, but not Hancock, Shelby, Correct. Shelby County. Okay, and then um, I know a little bit about this, but for people listening, um, what what were what were your early experiences or memories of music that might have predicted you'd go in this direction? I don't know about predictions, but you know, my dad took me. Uh, my dad was a physician and a family doctor close to my, my home. And growing up, he would volunteer at the state fairgrounds every year. And for volunteering, he would get four tickets and we would always go to a show. Okay. So it was Reba McIntyre, Oak Ridge boys, Dolly Parton, um, a lot of country, Randy Travis, Hank jr. I just remember those shows a lot, having a big kind of impact on me younger when I, when I was younger. And I don't know in what way, but I just remember them. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think I just had a natural love for for music um went through all my phases um early on was very hip-hop and and rap focused in my my younger days i remember uh my i think i might have told you this before my neighbor she was a uh, they were dairy farmers and one day it was my birthday and i don't think she knew what to get and she picked the first thing she found at kmart that day but it was a d nice cassette yeah and it was like it kind of changed my hip-hop views and so like, yeah. like I, I i wore that cassette out and then that kind of evolved me into more things and and i was just little moments over time you know that lead up to djing high school dances and you know having a little mobile dj business to carry in gear to go into shows with the emerson and just yeah. all these little things that kind of evolved over the years you know no talents musically at all um probably negative music talents <laughs> if that's possible but um always just kind of like being around creative people and and people that, you know, great songwriters had a, a appreciation for that. Yeah. So, so for you, it was what drew you in was like the experience, the live music experience. So you weren't that you, you didn't, um, initially, um, you weren't drawn to like, um, study guitar or study piano or study, um, uh, sound engineering or things like that. Right. It was more, I really like this. How can I help make this bigger? Yeah. How can I, help this artist have a bigger audience and how can I be a little role in that? I think, which is why I've been through all the phases of starting a label, being a manager, yep. you know, working in a record store, all these things of like, you know, whether they were successful or failed, I think they had a pretty big impact on landing me on what I liked, which was producing the concert. Um, and f for whatever reason, you know, it probably seems silly the most, but that, that day of show experience, like when yeah. you wake up, I mean, I'm not doing, I'm not producing the shows myself anymore, but I've done 2000 of them. Yeah. So when you wake up that morning and it's all the logistics, it's all the things that could go wrong and the bands rolling into town, just like that day of show energy was something that really kept me going through all of like the, the days when I was booking over at radio radio and the, when we started the club and all of that was kind of like a, what was fueling me at the time. So, so when I met you 20 years ago, hard to believe but you were, you had founded a record label benchmark. You had founded the Midwest music summit. And if I'm not mistaken, you were also working for BMG. You were working in actual WMG. Yeah. Yeah. It, you were at uh, w, world, world media, group. world media group. That's right. On the East side of Indianapolis and in actual like manufacturing and mm -hmm. distribution of records all at one time. Is that yep. correct? So, um, you know, for, for people who haven't met you before, what, in what order did that happen generally? Um, kind of all those, all those hats. Um, you know, I think the world media group thing was probably a pinnacle point for me. Um, you know, and, and Jeff Melantine was the owner who was a friend of my, one of my college buddies. Um, he really, um, 
gave me an opportunity, I guess, at the time. And I kind of ran with it and I felt like I did a good job. And I, and I always, and they were literally pressing CDs and distributing records. I was running the cassette room. So I was at the time I was, you know, turning out anywhere between 50 and 90,000 cassettes a shift, you know, working in this legitimate duplication room. And that was everything from Shawnee records to sugar Hill, to BMW navigation on tape um, to the mud kids, which is the day that I ran the mud kids uh, mash it up cassette was the day that I kind of, decided that I wanted to be in this business as a not in the manufacturing, but that's when I, you know, kind of reached out to Dan Metro at surf and how all my evolution at surf records started was through listening to that, that cassette. But over the years, yeah, we've did, you know, Beatles anthology. I mean, pressed three semi loads of Beatles anthology records. And, you know, all, like I said, all the whole sugar Hill catalog, you know, Bill Monroe, Ricky Skaggs, all that stuff, you know, I was doing pick and pack on shipping orders on that stuff. And so I feel like that's a great, for me, I wouldn't change it because a lot of people have to put in their time doing stuff that they don't like. Yeah. I put in my time doing stuff that I actually did like. Nobody really knows that about me now, but I think that those talking about moments that shape and form, those are all steps that kind the, of led us here. This is interesting to me because um, there are a, there's so many people I know who've gotten into the music music business or any artistic field. They see what's behind the curtain and the grind, you know what I mean? And there's that expression, you know, like record making. If you see how the sausage, if you see how the sausage yep. is made, you might not want to eat the sausage anymore. But, <laughs> but, um, so you, you, you deliberately went into, uh, embraced a lot of roles that were a, a grind, you know, a, a ton of grunt work. Yeah. So what, what is like, what, what is that? Cause a lot of people, they experience that and they're like, this is not for me. But for you, it seems like it was the opposite. I don't know. Perseverance or, wanting to win, I guess, hating to lose. Uh, a lot of people have different definitions of success. And for me, it wasn't always money uh, early on. And so I had a lot of really small victories that I kind of claimed that I kind of fueled my fire a little bit to keep going, you know, putting out a great record from yeah. the pieces or, yep. you know, working with Margo on the nuclear so-and-sos. Those are things, I mean, and that was successful. Yep. Um, I, don't want, I don't want to say that they're failed, but like financially, they weren't what they should have been and, and ultimately would have to move on from them, but I wouldn't still wouldn't change them. But so I guess there's not if that answers your question or not, but that's, well, I think so every time you and I are in our forties now, but like literally every time I talk to you, no matter what's going on, you've always got recommendations of new music. So it seems, mm-hmm. it seems like, like was some of that just the, like the childlike experience of like 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 you just said of like hearing a great record putting out a great record is that like the kind of the common thread i get you know i love it when it happens when there's people around because my promoter goosebumps are a real thing and there's been times when i'm like i'll be in the club and i'll see i'll be like look and it'll just be an armful of goosebumps and it's that feeling and so that's what why you do the grind that's why you put in the time and things like that you know that's happened Alabama shakes at radio radio in front of a hundred people, you know, there's just those things. And like, I still, that still motivates me. And I'm thankful that that motivates our team. We all kind of think the same, um, much different now with more people. Um, and, and happy the way that we've built this kind of family that kind of keeps carrying on that same mentality. There's one thing that you have too, is a lack, or at least it comes across this way, a lack of elitism. Okay. So like in other cities, the equivalent of the hi-fi, a lot of times it it attracts people who work there 
to be snobs, to be elitist, to maybe look down on the audience. But um, and pe- people people hearing this might think this is like you know mutual admiration society, but it kind of is. It's like <laughs> you you hire people who are in my experience, patient and kind, and they embrace the audience. But I also, I've also never known you to be like the record store snob who likes look down, looks down on this artist because they're popular or this artist because they have a hit. Am I, am, do I read that correctly? Is yeah, that- yeah. I'm, I think that it would probably depend on who you ask what perception is because there's certainly folks that, you know, I think would think that we're elitist, but they just don't know us. Um, but that's always been my philosophy was I want to put people on my team that will work hard and do it in the interest of you know the reasons why I would want to do it you know and that that's you know from Chelsea in the club and to, to the sound person to whatever it may be I want that same level of commitment um to, to the artist which I hopefully comes backwards and showing that we're here to put in the work we're not here to take the credit we're not here to go look at me it's not really about that I'm more of a look at my city type of a person than I am look at yep. me and so the sum of all of those things that we're doing, I hope resonate enough to where somebody else, that's a big reward for us when someone in Louisville says, oh man, you guys got a lot of stuff going on. I've been paying yeah. attention, you know, like I look at that and go, oh, that's a win. Absolutely. Right? You know, I, I never want to be like, oh my God, we sold out a show last night. Like, yeah, we sell out shows all the time. That's our, that's our goal. That's yeah. what we should be doing. Yeah. Um, but bigger wins are, are things like that we, we can do on a more regional scale. I want to get to where I want to get to, um, kind of this big, you know, inflection point, growth point that happens for you, like in the kind of late 2000s, but approaching 2010. But I, what was your benchmark records? And people listening to this can look up the story of benchmark records, put out a lot of great releases. And what I'm just going to infer from what you said before, put out a lot of um, critically acclaimed releases that maybe weren't as commercially successful as you wanted them to be. But as you look back, you were very young running this label. What were you, what are your biggest lessons looking back from running a label in the early 2000s? Well, it was a it was a time when it was a transitionary time between CDs and digital. That was probably one of the hardest parts. Um, one of our, you know, I've I've never been pigeonholed into a genre. I like everything from metal to folk, country, and hip hop, and, and that and that was reflected by the records we were putting out. Uh, I, I think, unfortunately, independent labels at that size probably need to have some type of type of a unique sound. So you build an audience and you keep putting out records of similar types of acts. We had a very wide range of acts. So we were trying to find those audiences every time, which made it a little bit harder. Um, But I thought we did a pretty good job with what we had at the time. And, you know, again, young, I mean, I, I am how old I was at that point in time, but there was a whole era before that. We started the Midwest music summit before that. Yeah. I was, you know, early working at uh, Scarab records and, you know, living downtown over there, like, helping out with raves and stuff that I knew nothing about. And then I, you know, I left out of that world and was like, I can't be a part of this. And that's the day that we started um, benchmark records. Yeah. Which ironically um, the move out, <laughs> it's the midnight move out. I don't know if you've ever had this conversation, but we moved out of there at midnight and it was me, Tom Coriel, Dave Brown from the Melody Inn and a couple other guys who helped me move that night and full circle back was my reason for starting the IIVA was seeing a lot of the, the hardships that uh, Dave and Rob are going through with the melody. So that like the, all these pieces yeah. are kind of like interconnected in some weird way. Yeah. Uh, so I had no idea. Yeah. Um, um, Midwest music summit though. I remember going and I remember like, you know, especially when you're younger, you really remember this as like a, this is like a magical night. I don't think I knew you maybe like t- summer of t- 02 or 03. It was like, 
a night at the Vogue and the pieces were at the top of their game and Rhymefest had written Jesus Walks. No, mm-hmm. sorry. I didn't know because that record wasn't wasn't yet out. Rhymefest had a new solo record and then we come to find out maybe later that year that he has a co he had, on Well, G- yeah, he had already written that song and it was yeah. out with him it was okay on it okay on a mixtape and then yeah. okay. kanye licensed it and put his verse on and that's that's that how key. that became okay. and then you had some chicago artists on the bill like archer pruitt from the sea and cake and it was just like this mm-hmm. it was this great lineup with many different genres represented um and again so this is this is um uh, I mean, it's sort of. I mean, you were you were shooting for a South by Southwest type experience, really in in Indianapolis. Is what I, you're I, and I really for. think we achieved yeah. it at a certain yeah. point, as for it's being in a, te- in a market where CMJ no- was hot, and they would they would cover it, and you had national media covering yeah. it. And yeah, and remember, right. this was a time when nobody cared about music in Indianapolis. Yeah, right. Like, for, at a, from a from an economic standpoint no. or whatever. Like, I mean, I was no banging my head against the wall to help get support for this thing. And, yeah, yeah. And you know, you had everybody from. I mean, KRS-One's on a keynote panel. Geffen Records is in town. People are right. from, you know, MTV and Fox are here licensing tracks from bands playing the Alley Cat. And I'm like, if that shit was happening now, yeah. I mean, come on. Like, that was like, we weren't even, like, trying and we were doing that. I'm That's like... There's this hot record by the now I'm go, like this group Ambulance Ltd. Yeah, the records yeah. were, and they played the patio, and that record was just out, and it was so so. Great. I remember that what, looking at the guy's face from Atlantic Records. He came in from New York because he was courting the slurs at the time, I think. Yeah. Um, Jared Zimmerman, slurs, Zimmerman, yeah. and we we were at. I'm like, you gotta come check this place out called Ventilator Studios, and he's like, okay, great. And like we walked in, and it was you know Mike Farmer's studio with a hundred people, yeah. and it was just a line around the block to get into this sweaty thing. He thought he was in New York. He's just like. He's never stopped talking about Indianapolis ever again after that. So I'm cool. like, that's what we wanted. Yeah. We just couldn't keep that momentum going. You was, know? was it just you needed, you, literally you needed more money to grow it at that time? Or I'd what? say more money. And we tried to like, you know, we really tried to stretch ourselves to help support the NAMM show when it was in town, which mean we had to do Broad Ripple and downtown simultaneously. And then we really like, I think the stretch was the hardest part because when we were compact and Broad Ripple, it was easy. And then when we had to go downtown, and I really wanted to include Radio Radio because I loved what, what Tufty was doing the first year he opened that up. And I'm like, this is what we have to include this club, right? Because it is, this is going to be a district. And so we had nine shows in Broderpool or 10, and then one show in Fountain Square. Yep. So it's hard to get that traversing across the city, that yep. you know, interconnection. So that was a big, big part of it, I think. And, and money, you know. I, I could never... I, I would be a failure in that business, I think, because I would be an emotional buyer and it's hard for me to like separate. Yeah. So, so like, like here's one, here's one question that just occurred to me. So if there is like a, a person who hasn't been in the music business who wants to get involved and you can sense that this person is passionate and emotional about music, mm-hmm. like how do you, how do you personally balance that genuine passion with the business view? Cause not every ba- like I imagine not every artist you love yeah. is going to have the commercial viability. And then some artists that you're kind of like, meh, but they're, they're the to- hot. Totally. So how, how do you, what's, what's kind of the, I was, I was the emotional buyer for a long time. Um, a lot of factors changed that, you know, you, after you lose enough money, um, the emotions change a little bit, <laughs> you know? Uh, so, that was a, that was a factor, and you know, and I met Dan Kemmer, and Dan really, you know, Dan taught me, you know, how to be a good buyer. I learned a lot from him. And Dan um, Kemmer, K E M E R, for people listening, executive for many years at Live Nation, mm-hmm. now is independent, right? 
Yeah, he's. I mean, he's a partner. He's a, he's one of your partners. Business. He's one of yeah. your business partners. Yeah, and he, yeah that's in, right. in, a, in a way, he has been since the beginning. He's just in a different relationship, um, and so we've been friends for since he moved to town. You know, back in the day, it was you know Matt Schwegman at the Vogue and Camera at Live Nation, and me doing my independent thing, and we all worked together. And you know, um, since Matt's left town, and then you know Dan Dan uh, parted ways with Live Nation, and that freed him up to come over here. You know, um, part time. I'd say full time, but he's also working at the Palladium. So, but you know, he 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 really uh, you know taught me how to be a really good buyer with something I didn't know before. A lot of it I learned kind of along the way, but I'd always kind of send my offers to him and say, "What do you think about this? What am I doing wrong? How do we structure this so it benefits both the artist and us?" And you know, so credit credit a lot of that to him. And is that um, I'm I'm just imagining this sort of evaluating these different opportunities where um, what am I trying to say? trying to figure out if this artist is going to be a good match for this venue on this date. And I guess I'm imagining it's a combination of art and science. Yeah. I mean, just, I mean, it goes back to professional gambling, which is kind of the nature of our business, right? You make educated guesses, you look at data, but in any given day, there's 20 factors that could change that. You know, another concert could pop up and cannibalize your audience. You could have bad weather. An artist could have a flat tire, like, you know, People could just not want to go. It could be 90 degrees outside and it's too hot. It could be 30 degrees, it's too cold. It's just all these different things. So you just forget about all of that and you go, at this point in time, based on the the plays uh, on, on digital, the airplay, the trajectory, the buzz online, the agent and the manager take it, play a big factor in that. We, we do a lot of things where nobody's ever heard of a band, but this manager has a record of, of you know building great artists. And they take chances with us, and so we take chances with them. Yeah. I need this. Jack Harlow was a prime example of that. Um, you know, when I got asked to book that show, I'm like, okay, I'm, you know, whatever you need, Pincus. Yeah. yeah. You hook me up, I'll do it for you. Yeah. Boom. Three shows yeah. later, and now look. Huge. You know, uh, um, I had you no had, idea who he was at the yeah. time. You, got, you were in early with a relationship with Justin Vernon, Bon Iver, before anybody knew who he was. Yeah, that really, that that credit really goes to Dodge. Um he was um, the time when him and Jeff Dupont and um, uh, Doug Felagy were doing the laundry matinee sessions. So I mean, they were doing video sessions at a math class at Pendleton High School, and that was one of the first big byproducts of that. Was Justin Vernon did that session, and and Dodge had the the, the radio show at the time, and it still does, but. I think he played a couple of those the audio tracks on Sirius XMU or Sirius at the time, I guess, and, and got some got some traction. And then I think um, Botch, who was an agent of Billions, um, he hit him up and said, hey, you should check this guy out, and Botch signed him. And then, so, you know, a lot of artists forget about, you know, the guys that helped them out. But I think still to this day, you know, Dodge and, and MLKB in general always get a shout out every time Bonavir plays here. So like he know, he's never That's forgot great. that little early so early stuff that he's done for us. So I'm gonna interrupt the progression for a minute because somewhere along the line we were talking about you working at World Media Group and you know, founding a Midwest Music Summit and owning a record label. It's impossible to have this conversation without mentioning Craig Lyle, aka Dodge, mm-hmm. who you're just referring to. Yep. You guys have had a working partnership for many years now. Mm-hmm. And I know sometimes, this is just my observation, sometimes you guys are working together a ton. Sometimes you're working together maybe not as frequently, but it sort of it sort of ebbs and flows depending on what's going on. Is that inaccurate? Yeah. And, and you I, guys are like brothers basically, right? Well, I think that what happened what is that there was a point in time when 
we Dodge and I both had to make decisions and he was working a day job and he had a family that to take care of and a, and a, and a, and a day job that didn't have as much flexibility as my day job did had a little more flexibility, but also was, was working around the clock and, and it was a fun project to start, right? They had laundry matinee. He had his radio show. I was already doing shows. Already had them. I met him at the Midwest Music Summit. Yep. He helped on the and, third or fourth year, I think. And at this time, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, before you, you, you referenced it earlier, the transition from CDs to digital. There's a moment in time when music blogs were huge because they were. Um, this music wasn't like ubiquitous yeah. on the internet, and so Dodge had a very successful blog that he bootstrapped. And mm-hmm. he was he was really helping, and which really helped to launch the careers of a lot of right. artists. And there, there, yeah, yeah, and there was a there was a you're exactly right. There was this like time, uh, and I I'm probably drawing a blank on the date right now, but I remember it because I I saw there was like ten blogs. It was Gorilla versus Bear, and it was My Little Kentucky Blog, Chrome Waves, Each Note Secure, like all these like you know, and these were just guys writing about music. Dodge did it because he was from Louisville and wanted to write about bands to his friends back home as a way to you know being a little homesick in a different different town. And one day you win the Yahoo award or for blogger of the year or what, I forget whatever awards, but they got a lot of accolades and all of a sudden labels and everybody were going, Oh, we got to get these blogs on board. We got to get blog. You know, now it's like Spotify. You got to get Spotify playlist. Then it was the blogs. Um, and so I got, I said, I got to know this guy. And so I reached out and came buds and he kept doing his thing. And I said, well, let's add live to this. And so we'd find the bands he was going to write about do the shows and it was just fun in the beginning. It was and a lot of a lot of successful business partnerships have you know you have people of complementary skills. Mm-hmm. How would you describe it? I mean, so to the outside observer, it's like he's kind of the gregarious promoter, you know, and you're the business guy. You know what I mean? But but I know it's more I know it's more complicated than that. Yeah, I'd say you know somewhat. You know, um, I, he has a a unique ear for certain types of bands and, and was getting a lot of those calls early on. So I was kind of defaulting to him for you know, recommendations on music on what do we think's the, that was when we were like, okay, well, what's going to sell tickets? Like, you know, I didn't really know at the time. I, you know, I kind of had a good idea, but like, I think when he got a hold of an artist and was playing it, that it had instant clout and credibility. And so we tried to focus towards those bands, um, friendly fires, white lies, like things, you know, dirty projectors earlier on yep. stuff like that. Um, so I would say that, you know, he, it, I think we were both complimentary, um, and, and over the years, you know, I would probably consider myself more of the workhorse in terms of the backbone of the concert side. Yeah. And at one point in time, it was one show every two months, and then it was once a month, and then it was twice a month, and then next thing we know, we're, you know, we're five days a week. And that's when we had the conversation. I'm like, I need to leave my day job and, and do yeah. this full time, or you need to do, you know, we got a hybrid something and, and I don't think that he was ready to do that at the time. And so he kind of stayed the more safe and secure route with the family, which I'd never hold against him at all. And then, you know, and, and then I took a lot of the risk on my end of investing the time and energy and time away from my family and all those things to make it work. And the progression if, um, for people who don't know you is 
in the 2000s and like getting in 2010, 11 concert promotion was really MOKB presents. So the name of his blog, my old Kentucky mm-hmm. blog became, it became MOKB presents and you're promoting small and midsize club shows mm-hmm. mainly. Is that yeah, right? And, that, yeah. and built that business. Yeah. We probably yeah. should have had a better name, but we, back in the day we we're just like, what are we going to call it? And we're just yeah. like, well, let's call it MOKB because we're in Indiana, not Kentucky and we're going to confuse yeah. people. Yeah. So that yeah, was why. Great. So they just stuck and now here, here it is. And then, and then you mentioned kind of the, that, you know, it sort of forced a decision about roles and responsibilities because he stayed full-time with his marketing business. And then you, you started doing this full-time. And then at some point you decide we want to own a club. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Shortly after that was when, I think when we started hitting those five shows a week uh, at at Radio Radio consistently, I mean, those were the heydays too. I mean, that was, you know, Sleigh Bells, Delta Spirit, Alabama Shakes, Lumineers, like, you know, Looking back on that now, that was like, wow, these are big shows. So, yeah, you do economics. Are started to realize in my head. I was starting to think through it. And 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 you're drawing bands because I was at a lot of those shows. You're drawing bands with 200 people who now sell 5,000 tickets. Yeah, right. Or yeah. way more than that now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. but yeah. yeah. Um, so I started. I, I really it wasn't any ill will towards radio radio or anything. I've always appreciated um, the opportunities that they've given us and had a lot of respect for, for Ronnie and David over there. Um, it, for me, it was like, it was an economic decision of, well, I am an independent promoter. So there is a hundred percent of this money at the door available. And I am giving 70, 60 or 70% of it to the band. So there's 30% left for me to pay this sound guy, whatever. At the end of the night, I'm like, well, you made $100 tonight. Good job, you know. And I'm you know, passing on the day job paying much more than that. And, you know, it's a volume play at that point, And then it's a grind. And so, like, why am I doing all of this work for no reward? If we're going to build this company and build it correctly, we, we need to have a better, um, a better business model. And that included capturing concessions and some of the other things that were involved. And that was the moment we said, let's, let's do this. Let's do our own club. For people listening who know nothing, they go to concerts, they enjoy it, but they don't even think about where the money goes. The model, if I'm not mistaken, is especially for small and mid-sized clubs, the the artist revenues are going to be based on ticket sales in the door mm-hmm. primarily, and then the venue, their um, margin is going to come from the bar and concessions. Is that right? Yeah, and yeah, and, and for the most part, yeah. That's and I think every venue is differently. You know, you can do shows very inexpensively at the Melody Inn, and you can do shows for. $60,000 at the field house, you know, I mean, we, we fall somewhere in the middle there. We employ really good people that are not, that don't, that are not the cheapest in the business because we try to provide the yeah. best experience. And so it costs us more to run shows. And then the, the gam, the legal gambling that you talked about is, if I'm not mistaken, professional gambling, professional gambling, sorry, professional gambling, <laughs> all of you in the music are professional gamblers, <laughs> different artists have different fees they want to command and, or, or they've got different risk tolerances in terms of mm-hmm. what, you know, and, and, and when they, if they're willing to sort of take a chance on you and then you take a chance on them and it's a little bit of a dance. Is that right? With that, with that uh, artist or artist management. At this level it is. Yeah. It's a fine line of, I need to make sure I can make this artist as much money as possible because I want to have a long-term relationship with them and, yeah. and, and show that I can do a good job to be a part of their team. And I also have to pay my staff and, and generate a profit. Yeah. So those are the kind of fine lines that we have to kind of walk through. And, you know, every artist, it's a bit of a negotiation based on their needs at the time, how big the tour is, how many dates they're playing. Is it a festival? Is it a club date? What are the economic conditions? What are we up against? Yeah. Types of things. So everything, everything changes a bit. But, yeah, most of the deals are right about the same. So, Can you talk about the ethos of the Hi-Fi Club? So when you decided to become – because 
I've always known the hi-fi that it's really you're you're aiming for um, national a, national acts that have a national audience. You do though really promote Indianapolis artists, and you're really mm-hmm. generous. But but you were really I mean I think of um, Shuba's in Chicago. Um, mm-hmm. You know I'm trying to think. I'm getting older now, so it's like the the you know places in D.C. that I went to when I lived there for three years. Um, you know. Iota, I mean, they're, they're going to be, oh, Black Cat in D.C. Definitely, yeah. that, you know, I, th- I think of places like that, which are not the um, Metro 930 Club size. It's kind yeah. of like the, the you Mercury know, Lounge in New York. Mercury Lounge. Yeah, Berlin, yeah. Lexington. Yeah, like, I mean. So you're, you were definitely, you were aiming, if I'm not mistaken, you were aiming for that with this club, but you're also trying to mm-hmm. set aside dates to help uh, promote Indianapolis artists as well. Absolutely, right? yeah. I mean, yeah. that's, uh, you know, local's always been a part of our, our mix, and sometimes it's more frequent than others, and sometimes there's, you know, the tours don't uh, uh, allow that opportunity, but I think by and large over the years we've done a ton of local shows. That's how I got started, so um, I think that's important for our for our, our community and our neighborhood too. And and we'll, we'll get into, you know, Indianapolis music strategy and IIVA, but, I like, I think there's no question – when you opened the doors of Hi-Fi at that time, no, actually, I'm going back. Before you started MOKB Presents, there's no doubt, because the kind of music that I was interested in primarily, it was a lot of indie rock, some hip-hop. You know, I got heavy into jazz later, but it's like, there's no doubt you'd see touring itineraries, and now I'm thinking like 2004, 2005, okay? And you'd see artists mm-hmm. hop over indie, go Chicago, Cincinnati, or Chicago, Louisville, or vice versa, and hop over indie. I mean, if they did come to indie, indie gets a Sunday night show, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, you were really trying to put indie on the map and give it and make it a much more prominent destination for national touring acts. Yeah, definitely. I don't like using the put it on the map phrase, but I, you okay. know, I like to, I, I, I like to fight for our market and we, yeah. and we want, yeah. we want those things. We want to be, we want to raise our hand and say, Hey, look over here. Yeah. You know, so that why, was, why do you suppose that? I mean, I know that I know some of this is just a numbers game because it impacts like flights and air service. We're pretty close to Chicago. We're pretty close. They, you can, you know, within a two, three hour drive, you can hit a lot, you can hit several cities of like 2 million. Mm-hmm. So I know some of it's a numbers game, but is there something, was there something else to the equation? There's, well, there's a couple of things. There's routing, there's, um, relationships. Um, there's audience of ticket buyers, you know, age of ticket buyers, like not having a college campus close by. That's kind of always been a thing. Um, like, I mean, being, having the club on campus, yeah. you know? Because um, if IU were in downtown Indianapolis, I mean, it's a whole other Yeah, whole and, other and then it's money. Right? So, right. Is it, you know, if I can right. get X in Cincinnati and X in Chicago, then I'm not going to stop in Indianapolis. Right. right? Why waste my time? Um, and then venues. So once the, all those things started to come online, we started to have venues. You know, the, the agents didn't necessarily have a lot of independent promoters here outside of Live Nation and the Vogue at the time, really. So we had to build a name for ourselves and, and, and do a lot of – shows with bands we really probably didn't want to do, but we just had to prove that we were like, not like, you know, fly by night promoters and that we were going to, we were here for the right reasons. And it took a lot of time to build that trust. Um, and which is something that we really invested hard in early on and doing things beyond just the show. We were acting like, you know, managers in this market and, you know, Dodge is doing the radio thing and we're doing a session and we're doing all the things to keep building the audience of these artists so that they can eventually sell more tickets and more albums. Um, and so I think that that was a big, a big catalyst early on was once we 
once we got the agents to pay attention to us, then the calls started coming more frequently, which is when the show started happening more frequently. We had a really hard time saying no early on. Um, now we say that we know a lot more than we used to, but um, you know, back then you're just, it's, it's wild and free and you're just like, yeah, I want the show, bring the show. Yeah. You know, and then. And indie as a market, what I've learned from you is there's a, there's a, there's a good, it's a great concert market. I've learned some of this from Kemmer too for, and I want to make sure I get this right. Hugely popular national artists will do well in Indianapolis generally, but the middle it has, has and, 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 and sort of the, the, the concert going public's appetite to take a chance on a new artist, especially pre MOKB mm-hmm. and pre hi-fi was so, so. Yep. That's, that's correct. I, I hope that we've changed that. I feel like we have, I think so. I think, I think people see an artist play on our, on our, on our bill and are at least like intrigued. Yeah. Let me listen to that. You know, yeah. let me see, let me see who that is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think that, that, that has struggled for years. Um, I attribute some of that to our age restrictions to get into a club, you know? Yeah. You know, if you, I think with the exception of old national center, there, there's a time when if you're not 21, you can't go to see a band unless they're playing at a giant venue. Right. And I think you and I yeah. have had this conversation about you've missed that point in your time when you, you're really impressionable. Uh, it's you know, magic. If you're, if you're 16 or 17 years old and you're finding your favorite band and like, it's magic. Yeah. And if you get a stand side stage at the Hoosier dome or yeah. the venue, the Hoosier dome or, you know, the Emerson theater or any of these other venues. And like, you see them, you watch them, you get to meet them after the show. Like there's a lot of special things that happen and are formed throughout that time. Um, that a lot of people didn't get a chance to experience. And so, when they turn 21 and they're like, you know, oh, I can buy tickets to the Hi-Fi now or buy tickets to the Vogue. Like, they, we've not been able to really influence them with good music and culture yet. Yep. <laughs> so, and you've, you've already, you've formed other habits. You've, yeah. you've, you've prioritized yeah. other things. Yep. There's this, all this stuff, you know, just like, even like the elasticity of your brain when you're a kid, like how, how a kid can pick up guitar at 15 and play at virtuoso level by 18, you know, yeah. all that t- all that time to spend, but also literally the elasticity of, of the brain. There's less, know, less things taking up space in your brain at that time. I and think. less adult responsibilities yeah, and stuff. Totally. Yeah, totally. Um, so there's this big, and it's, it seems like big inflection point because you, you found the hi-fi, but at that time you're also booking bigger and bigger venues through your live nation relationships and things like that. Yeah. Throughout. I mean, I think we kind of we skipped a, so we had, the View 317 Lounge was yeah. our first little baby room where we yep. taught ourselves if we had the chops to even do a venue or not. Yep. Did that for a while. And then we had the first incarnation of the Hi-Fi, which was about a 200-cap room. And that just that came about in 30 days. You know, Von Dalen's wife at the time had a dress shop in there, and she decided she wasn't going to do it anymore. And he said, hey, do you want to move your venue downstairs? And we're like, okay. 30 days later, the Hi-Fi opens. You yeah. know, that's venue one. And then – Book that for two years, blow it out, selling out about every night. Need a bigger room, tear it down, build it again. Yep. So that's th- about that point is when we're like, okay, we feel our home base is kind of the way we want it. Yeah. Because we actually got to build it the way we wanted it the second time. What What did you like about owning the venue, and what did you not like about it? Because again, our fairly frequent conversations, it's like there's no. <laughs> this is just my sense. There's no way to own a venue. You like. You can't, you can't, there's nowhere to hide. You have to be concerned about things like 
air conditioning. <laughs> I mean, obviously acoustics for sure. Yeah. Electricity and plumbing and stuff like yeah. these all have the things that nobody thinks about. I certainly didn't think about when I go to a concert, they have a huge impact on the whole experience. Mm-hmm. So what did, what did, what did you, when you, when you made that leap and now you own it, what did you like about it? What did you not like about it? Uh, well, thankful that, you know, the Dalen team here that runs the building has always, you know, kind of handled those types of things for us as a tenant. So, those have been fairly insignificant, but they do happen, right? The AC goes out and what are you going to do? It's going to be hot. You know, I think it's more so the navigating um, employees and a team and kind of learning how to run a business in that respect. Um, It's an interesting business to start with, to say the least. Um, It has a lot of nuances. And then you throw in all the stuff in the music industry and what that does to that business. And I don't know, it's just, you know, uh, you learn how to be a general contractor and fix things. You're a janitor. You're a promoter. You're a, you're a digital marketer. You're a host. You're, you know, you're all of you're those head things. Of security. You're head of security. Um, you're you're um, toilet plunger, uh, whatever it may be. Um, but you do what you do to make the show happen and make it a good experience. Yeah. So. Okay. Something I've never asked you. Does a, is there one show that stands out in the first couple of years of Hi-Fi, like you own it, but then is there a show or two shows that stands out for, this is for you, the music fan, mm. and you're like, you're like, this is magical. Ryan Bingham was a, I really liked that show. We had a run of stuff that was like, you know, it was Bournes, it was El King, you know, um, bands that were like, if you look back on it now, that band played in a 200 cap. I mean, I don't even know how we got 200 people in there looking back on it, you know, um, but there was, there is some definite moments when I was just like, wow, this is pretty cool. You know, was it Macaulay Culkin's band played yeah, the pizza underground. pizza underground? I just yeah. looked up and I'm like, Macaulay Culkin is on stage playing in a band right now. You know, he's standing in the back alley of the Murphy building. This is so weird. Uh, but it was just like, you know, not pinch me moments, but just like, man, this is cool. Yeah. I like this, <laughs> you know? Yeah. John C. Riley. It wasn't at our venue, but the John C. Riley thing we did at Radio Radio with him. That was cool. Um, I don't know. Just I, I, I wouldn't change any of it. It's it's been a, it's been a grind, like you said. But there's too many good moments that that make it worthwhile. Yeah. Versus the bad ones that don't. So yeah. And I've you know it's funny. I I said to you one time several years ago saying, oh man, I'm sure these artists, you know, a lot of them are just prima donnas and stuff like that. And you were you were like you were like no, not usually. You were like if you kind of know what you're getting into. They're there. It's you, you, what you communicated to me at one time is the, the, the good experiences far outweigh the bad. Oh in yeah. Terms of dealing with the artists. Definitely. It's all right. Yeah. I can, you know, I'm not in the venue every night <clears throat> in the, in the production side of things like I used to be. Um, but I, but I pay attention to it and I, and I, and I know for a fact, even from my days doing it, that, you know, you'll do 20 shows and one of them will, have, you know, somebody will have an attitude or something, but usually most of the time it's, it, it goes away. If you, you know, if you realize that they just drove 16 hours in a van and changed two flat tires and yeah. you know, they're not happy. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's make it better for them. How do we change this? And so yeah. that's kind of our motto, um, you know, with the team. So yeah, uh, if you know what you're doing and you communicate and, and you treat people fairly, the shows go yeah. well. I'm going to, I'm going to switch to talking about Indy in a minute, but there's one question that just occurred to me to ask you, have, have you, have you had a pinch me moment where you were able to provide a stage for one of your childhood heroes, like one of the artists that you would have seen at the state fair, seen seen early on, saying, "I wow, I can't believe that she or he, this person I saw as a kid, is he is here." Has, has that has that happened in that way? 
Um, you know, I you had like Marty Stewart has played here. Winona Judd, maybe. Well, oh, she played. I saw that's the Judds right. at the fairground, and she right. played the annex. That's right. She gave me a big hug. That was nice. That's so cool. <laughs> um, Her mother just passed, right? Yeah, and yeah. they were so sweet. I hate that hap- that happened to them, but you know, that's um, man, that's tough. But she she was she was fantastic, and and yeah. had zero and zero attitude. Was again going back to like it's just good people. That's you know, so cool. Uh, and I think that. that that plays a big factor in why we do what we do. So. so cool. So you can't do what you've done and not have certain, well, without a love for Indianapolis, because you've had chances to do this in other markets that you've turned down. Yep. I know that. Um, and I know some of, a lot some, a, a lot of what you do, like this, it could be subject to a whole other talk just about your love for Indianapolis and your belief in kind of <clears> the, <throat> the, um, the city. Um, you, 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 you organize an effort that leads us to, it's gone through different phases and then COVID happened, but indie music strategy and other things like that, bringing together other venue owners, private and public sector. Before we get into sort of how you've been able to pull this together, I, I do want people who don't know you to kind of, what, what's, what's driving your kind of passion for the city and your belief in the community? Because that's something that always comes through. You know, it, ch- it changes, I guess, from time to time. And I think I've always been this, you know, you want to, you can't be a hero in your own backyard mentality type thing. And I, you know, I, I just wanted to like take all of these bands that I really love. Like I just, there's so many talented songwriters and this is evolution over the years, but early on I'm like, man, there's all these bands are so good. Why don't people know about them? Why are they not, you know, why are other cities' bands getting paid more attention to than these bands? And there's always this barrier of, well, I just need to get out and tour, or they need to, you know, right, this record needs to get out there, more people need to hear it. And, you know, I just, that's always kind of been the fuel of, well, how does this city get better, and how does this city provide the things that are necessary so that that can happen? Um, and I really just, you know, I hate losing, and I hate, the fact that other markets that aren't as um, culturally relevant really are getting a little bit more shine and some of their artists are too. So I kind of take that a little bit personally, Um, you know, and I really just want to win in my hometown. I want, I want for us to have all of these venues that are, that are great and all these great shows and all these artists are being, you know, recognized from here and they're mm-hmm. out touring and representing Indianapolis and it fuels this whole thing. That's not sports and right. It's right. music. It's a whole nother thing. Right. Um, there's so for some, some, some of my listeners are my West coast friends, you know, who have some familiarity with Indianapolis, but I want to press on this a little more, just see if this is, this is like, I got to have Otis Gibbs on here. I got to track him down. Cause Otis, Otis is like so passionate saying mm-hmm. he, he calls it the, avant-garde working class of Indianapolis. He's like somebody, (laughs) he's like, you take a person, regardless of their racial background, they, they appear blue collar on the surface, but then you, you spend time with them and they've got all these really nerdy, fascinating interests. And I feel like there's like so many artists across like rock and and hip hop that, that that's like a thing. But what's your, what's your, I mean, am I, am I on to something? I mean, is that is totally, that well, Hey, yes, you should have him on. Okay. Uh, yeah. but, but and he, and he would know every single weird fact about any of those things. Right. That, um, but yeah, I think, I think that you're right. Um, I, I mean, I don't know where they, what was the original question? What is it about indie that makes it unique when you, cause you say, I hate to lose. And I think I know what you mean. Like when I think losing, it's like, 
when these other places that don't have as much culturally get a lot of national sizzle, you know, yeah. via marketing or yeah. stuff like or that. Or you lose an artist that moves to that town. Why? Yes. Right. Why'd they move? Because they thought that they had all these other things that were available right. to them. So why don't we have those things? Right. You know, and Otis is a great example of that. You know, Otis told me, Otis <clears throat> told me recently, he's like, he's like, I loved living in Nashville, but I realized everything that I accomplished in Nashville, I could have accomplished in Indianapolis and I almost fell out of my chair. I was a little bit mad too. Cause <laughs> yeah. I'm like, why didn't like myself included? Why didn't we like, like the way we do, like when a company threatens to leave, why didn't we just exactly. Like, right? So that's, yeah. you, you hit it. So that's exactly like when I, when I see something or hear something like that, I think loss. And when they come back, I'm with the win. Right, and so we just need to get more wins than losses. Yeah, so yeah. Mom- and momentum. Yeah, so um, this is I'm, gonna, I'm combining kind of indie music strategy and independent venue alliance because it's okay. kind of it's kind of, they're 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 both connected. Um, you were after years of you know kicking and screaming. I mean that you know with affection. Um, you know you got more certainly more visibility from our mayor and the private sector and mapping. Um, the music economy, the way that you'd map tech and life sciences. For me, the biggest takeaways, and it's many of these things are things that you've known for a long time. We were just, you know, taking a more mainstream. The biggest takeaways were things like lack of all ages venues. You talked about, you know, why that's, you know, why, why that's so important. And we don't have that a lot here. Lack of support for creation of like smaller and midsize venues and opportunities and things like that. And just ways to like, like, ways that we could better highlight the music that's here through all the sports that we do and things like that. What are, were those, what other ideas, you know what I mean? Are the things that, that for you are the most important things to highlight from that effort? What the things that we need or the things that were any of it, any of it. I just think of, you know, like commerce and resources, the screen printers and the studios and the, all the things that the artists need to become, um, you know, do the things they need to do throughout the course of an album cycle or, or whatever, shoot a video, whatever. Like, we need all of those things to be um, accessible and close by and hopefully in, in pockets of the city where they can kind of work and feed off each other. Um, I think, you know, Fountain Square has that right now. Um, there were discoveries through, again, these might have been things that you knew well, but like through any music strategy, like all these underrated assets, like all the gospel music that gets mm-hmm. recorded here, all the... Um, and the history pub- of the... The history, yeah. I know. And the, the the publishing houses, like how Leonard Publications and all the recording that they do here, there were almost these like like cottage industries within music that were not visible yeah. to people like myself. You know what I mean? That we were trying, that we're trying to yeah. bring out and connect. And it doesn't always have to be like the cool indie band. No. You know, it's you have Gaither Music and you have, oh, you man. know, I mean, you have people that are, you know making a living and an artist that are making a living yeah. off of music in general. Yeah. I met and Bill at the Pacers game. Yep. It was the last game of the year. And he, he, ga- I, he gave me his number. He asked me if I'd come up and uh, visit the studio when they got off tour. I'm definitely going. Yeah. Cause I mean, up in Alexandria and we used to press some of their stuff at world media group. Is that it's right? It's like a huge business. Bill you know? and Gloria Gaither. Yeah. Yeah. So um, we build some momentum and then COVID hits and everything changes. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to dwell on that. Cause I know you could have a whole other, you know, interview based on COVID, but the concert business goes away for a while. But one of the things I admire about you is immediately you get the venue owners together and you, and you felt the venue owners needed to be organized. And if I'm not mistaken to support each other, but also to make sure that the, um, you know, 
things like PPP and the resources that were available could help as many people at least survive mm-hmm. as possible. What's your what's what's your mentality? What's kind of your psychology at that time? And I'm going back to the spring of 2020. You were my first call. I literally called you. I thought you were my first call. I called you from the Vogue. I just got done having the conversation with drive-by truckers, tour manager. Kind of knew this was coming, right? And then it happened, right? And then got done with them. I had to cancel the camp show the next night, and then I called you. And I said, this is going to be bad. we got to move right now. Man, I thought I called you. <laughs> or maybe you – I don't know. Who knows? Okay. We've slept since then. You, yeah. but that was – you were the first person that I talked to after I got done with those those two cancellations because I knew that you could at least – you know, that you, that you, you probably already had the same feeling, and yeah. you could motivate the right people yeah. to get us some momentum because if we didn't act fast, we were going to have a gap. And that gap yeah. could have been a, could have been detrimental, not just well, to music, to a lot of industries. And, I think. And and that was we so our the chamber organization has a meeting immediately here. I mean, you next know, you, morning. You were, yeah, the next morning, you were very kind to host it with a bunch of like, uh, board, some of our board members and entrepreneurs. Just like, what the hell are we going to do? And um, I feel like we came up with some pretty good short term tactical. And now you organized. I don't want to skip over stuff, but you organized a venue alliance that started doing kind of benefits and started doing these virtual, you know, there's one virtual program that happens, I think at the end of May, maybe beginning of June Mm -hmm. that tons of people watched and stuff like that. And I feel like, I guess it was like the whole industry hit really, really hard times, but I know those efforts helped a lot of people at least get through it and survive for a year. Yeah, I hope so. What was that? What was that like for your, I mean, I I don't want to, what, I mean, you you had you had times during 2020 when you were like, do I get out of this business? Right. Totally. I'm just. I, I mean, there was times I just sat at home and scratched my head and was like, I don't know. I mean, we're, we're also talking to other venues and yeah, you know, artists are in the same boat, agents yeah. are in the same boat, yeah, drivers are in the same boat. You know, yeah. Our whole industry, right? So. And now I know I know like looking back, I know I would have done a lot differently, but but it seems like PPP and some of the local efforts actually worked fairly well just in terms of helping provide some hope. Yeah. You know, the, the chamber program was the first, I'm pretty sure the first to roll out was a, was a, some kind of a bridge because yeah, rapid response loans. without that, we couldn't yeah. have got to the PPP because that was through the federal government and that took a little bit more time. Yeah. So I think that I'm so happy to hear that. I think that all of the things, and again, this goes probably beyond our industry. This is just local business in general is that quick reaction time because yeah, you know, that's what a bridge loan's for, right? Yes. <laughs> you know, it's a bridge, yeah. and that really was yeah. the bridge to the PPP for a lot of businesses locally. And then PPP kicked in, yep. which was great because PPP ultimately got forgiven. And so we're just, you know, it's great. Money is just did, going out the door. We did. Day, uh, so we did twenty three million in very small loans in twenty twenty alone, and the average size was like twenty thousand. It varied, but I was like, that was like we. Ne- I never would have predicted that, but you helped. You helped a ton, and this is, I think, just your ethos. It's like you know, move fast, calculated risk. I mean, that kind of that first that first meeting at the Hi-Fi, and then the subsequent conversations. So I think kind of gave us the confidence. It's just like, you know, move. Don't just you can't. We're a community organization, but move fast. Yeah, you know, take I think timeline risk. wise to put it in perspective was major shutdown of cancellations on whatever that was March thirteenth ish. That was a Thursday. Uh, we met at the at the high five the next morning. The chamber team uh, met there. Um, the next day, NEVA, the National Independent Venue Association, was formed. And then two days later, we formed the IIVA. 
That was in a span of five days. Yep. Your your first program, concert program for IIVA is still out there on YouTube, and it's called... Mm-hmm. Uh, till we meet again. Till we meet again. So if, if you're if you haven't seen it yet, till we meet again. IIVA, and there were special tributes to um, John Prine who had just passed, Bill Withers who had just passed, and uh, Adam Schlesinger, mm-hmm. Fountains of Wayne, yep. and many other projects who had just passed. That was pretty cool. Yeah, and that That's was great. you know, none of us knew what we were doing. Right? We're like we're sitting at home. How can we produce this special of live yeah. streams and put it all together? And hell, we came out with two hour program. That That's I so was cool. pretty. I was pretty impressed. Um, Mayor opened it up. Mayor opened it up. Matt, Matt Mays produced it for yep. us. And, you know, that was a that was a lot of people jumping in to kind of help the cause of the alliance, you know, that even weren't venue owners. Yep. Um, what was your first sign that, hey, maybe we're turning a corner and maybe live music will be coming back? What was the first? Was, it, was, it, was there an event? Was it just a feeling? What was the first? What was your first sign that kind of got you thinking, okay, maybe we're going to make it? I mean, to be honest with you, there's a lot of dead space in my head in that era of time. Yeah. It's really <laughs> what we went through mentally was, was so challenging that I've, I think I've subliminally blocked a lot of it out. Almost like Just PTSD. Be, well, yeah. Kind of, in a way. Yeah. Because yeah. it was, okay, start, don't start, stop, don't you can yeah. do it. You can't, you can't like just every day. Like yep. we're like, we wake up, we're just like, I don't know what we're doing. Yep. And then you don't have any bands that you can do. And then you can't do them in your venue. And you're just like how many t-shirts can we possibly sell here to keep this thing going? You know, were there any personal like personal habits or routines that you developed that now actually there's a a positive. So I'll use it for an example, like, and again, I know I'm at a point in my life where I'm very blessed that we could do this, but you know, as you know, cause you've lived this life, we got an RV and just started traveling everywhere. Cause I, I noticed for me, I'm very out of sight, out of mind. So if I can get out of town, even for a day or two, that really helped me to like detach. Mm-hmm. You know yeah. what I mean? Was there anything like that in terms of how you were living and your, you know, your sons in that time that actually, that, that, that are going to, are going to pay some dividends? I, I think, you know, the problem was I never really got the opportunity to stop, you know, cause we had to keep going and we had to do all this advocacy to get to where we are now. I'm kind of probably feeling the effects of that a little bit now, but um, being able to get away to a campground for a couple of days or go fishing, fly fishing for a couple of days was great. And I really hope that I can take advantage of some of that time now yeah because that work is done and we're we're set up and it, it, it's still still a grind but it's either going to happen or it's not so yeah. now not to skip too far ahead but now what you were describing at the beginning of the conversation in 2022 so i'm going to ask you about kind of mu- the the music in state of the music industry because as a fan and this could be wrong it seems like now so many artists given um, they weren't touring mu- at all or much in 2020 and 2021. And, you know, they got to make a living and they want to build an audience. So there's been a huge rebound in 2022, almost too much, almost too much competition. Is that mm-hmm. accurate? Yeah, a lot of competition and, you know, a little bit of an oversaturation. So you have more music than you have demand. Yep. Or the, more music and, and then the the pocketbooks can't support that because of the, because of the volume. And, you know, I think I, I honestly think we've been in a recession for a couple of months already. Um, and, and we've certainly have felt, you know, I, I hate referring to supply chains and all these things, but that stuff is really real. Not necessarily the same as it would be for, uh, we're not talking about semiconductors in the automotive industry here, but we're talking about aluminum for cans. We're talking about drivers for buses and gas prices. And all of those things are, 
are highly impacted. There was a time when I couldn't even get an ice box for an outdoor event. Yep. You know, now you can't get portalettes. You know, it's just yep. like those things exist and they, you try to not raise ticket prices and you try to not raise drink prices because you don't want to push that effect back, but then you have to because yep. how are you going to be here? And that's the, the, the indication that you're, you're and, starting and, a recession. And, so. and another, another huge factor. Um, so uh, knowing you as I do, you're very discerning to the point of almost obsessive about who you hire and bring on your team. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people left the, just left the music business. Right. I mean, they did, they, they I mean, they changed careers. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Several did. I, and I, you know, I don't think that you're wrong. We are right. We, we want, we have a very specific type of person that we want to hire. There was also a time when we couldn't find anyone to work. Yeah. And you know, you're like, you kind of have to kind of take your mentality a little bit and go, I just need people to be able to produce this show. Yeah. You know, can we hold it together for two more nights? But yeah, I think our, our core team is everyone here is handpicked and we go through, we go through a pretty rigorous process of, you know, are you here for the right reasons type mentality? So now, um, uh, it feels like for the most part you've been re-energized for the past few months, like 2022. And I know today I'm catching you on a bad day cause you got a ton going on <laughs> no, this week, but it's like, but it's like my, my talking to you recently, it seems like it's been a shot of energy. Yeah. I think early on it was right now it's back to this, you know, early in the year we wake up every morning and go, let's book some shows. Let's book some shows. Let's get this show. We want to get these shows. Now we've got all the shows. Now we're like, okay, Shows aren't selling. Yep. Okay, now, how, how are we going to sell shows? How yep. are we going to sell tickets to this show? What can we provide value to the consumer? What can we do to expand our ancillary offerings? Well, you know, these are all the things that we're thinking about now because we're, we're, we're evolving with the market conditions again. Yep. <laughs> again. Yep. Like, we just, we only got three and a half months of back to normal market conditions, and now here we are taking another turn down. So it's just like, it, it's a constant struggle every day to figure this industry out at this time. Yeah. And it's not a me problem. It's a, it's an industry problem and it's tell other us, businesses too, probably yeah, it is. But tell us a little, a little peek behind the curtain. Cause again, this is, this part's just so fascinating to me. So like, cause like from an audience behavior standpoint, you know, I, I know I have, I've had all these experiences lately that remind me that I'm 46. I'm not 22. Cause you know, some things don't change, but some things definitely do. You know, when you look at when you look at the audience behavior, you were a minute a minute ago. You were talking about a factor that when there's so much going on and almost oversaturation, then that's that's not great. You know, but in the mind, how, can can you predict like where this is heading in the next three or five or ten years? When you look at like the twenty something year old ticket buyer, you know, someone who's going to a concert, maybe do they approach it differently than you and I did when they're that age? Totally. Yeah. I mean, they're going to go to concerts in the metaverse. You know, I mean, that's, yeah. that's where that's going to go. Yeah. Um, I hope, I hopefully this lot, the live, live thing sticks around. It's for me. Yeah. It's the passion point of, you can't duplicate that. Right. We tried that with streaming and other stuff, but like, yeah, but they're, but yeah, they're going to, they're going to go to concerts a different way than, than, than we do. So yeah. we'll, industry will evolve and we'll, we'll get to that point. Um, I noticed that you've become the like DJ culture is obviously bigger and you incorporate more of that now into the clubs and things like that. I mean, there was a night, this is like four or five years ago. You were kind enough to let chamber music play the hi-fi regularly. And you were like, you're like, what are you doing after that? We were playing till like 11. There's a DJ coming on at midnight. Mm-hmm. And you're like, can you stay past midnight? And I was like, yeah. Um, and you're like, watch this. And then 
some people who were there stayed and then a lot of young people came in and it was such a diverse audience and it was so cool and my, I real that really made an impression on me. I forget who was playing. If it was Lockstar, it's Action Jackson, it's Action yeah, Jackson, it's my train. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, and and just really, really cool. And that was one of those moments where I'm like, this is really cool. I loved the DJ, and there was a very young, diverse audience. But it was also a reminder of, wow, this is a different thing. I didn't, I didn't experience this in Indianapolis when mm-hmm. I was in my twenties. Right. But it was, it was really cool. Yeah. What it, what is what is that or how, what, how does that, how does that, um, inform the kind of shows that you book and kind of how you use the space? Um, well, we always try to use the space for as many different things as possible. You know, that particular night that's attributed to, to Ben Jackson and him and him cultivating that audience. And yeah. then this younger um, subset of, of, you know, young professionals that are looking for something to do at midnight, you know, and he's identified that and was able to make it happen and other people latched on or whatever, you know, I think that seeing things like that, we I tr- I treat the room as a, as a black box, right? Just it's a it's a box. It sounds amazing. We've got amazing staff. It can be used for a podcast. It can be used for a concert. It can yep. be used for probably can't do any Broadway in there. It's not set up for it, but you know, never know. It could, it could be a film night. What it doesn't matter to me what it is, and I want all kinds of different stuff in there. Um, and we've. I think we get pigeonholed a little bit just because of the market and what the market likes. You know, the market is a has always been a country market. It's been a the number one radio format in the country for years. I'm sure that's shifting and changing now, but by default, Indianapolis is a a strong country market. So yeah. it's not, you know, rocket science. All the offshoots of country, whether it's bluegrass or Americana, whatever, those types of shows are going to do well here because they have fans that were willing to buy tickets. You know, yeah. if we had fans that were willing to buy tickets to a different type of show, then we do that. Yeah. You know, hip hop's growing like crazy. Hip hop's growing like crazy, and I don't also don't want to step on toes with like I'm not going to do a bunch of jazz bands that are going to take away from what David Ali's doing yeah. in the Jazz Kitchen because that's his world, right? Yeah. And so I, we want to try and fill the pockets that we we do. We don't want a lot of inner club competition. It probably happens a lot more now than it used to with you know, between, you know, us and the Vogue and other places like that. But that's natural as the market grows. Right. We're, we're going to have that, you know, that's healthy right. competition. Um, but I think that it's important to have those mousetrap to have their place and the melody to have their place and even the bluebird to have theirs. And like, those are all important pieces of the growth of this market because yeah. we have to have those stair steps and people that can build audiences like we do. Yeah. If you add in, it's amazing, If it, as I watch the, the touring schedules, if you if you add Indy and Bloomington together, right now, just in terms of the bands that we feed, so if you consider Bloomington a part of the metro area, which mm-hmm. is it's probably the way most people think of it, it's just outside. It's pretty incredible. You you know what I mean? Yeah. I think we, I don't know. Substantial. I, I, and that's one thing in my time, and I I, I won't do this forever, but I'll do it for a while. <laughs> I really bo- both in terms of identity and culturally, you doing a better job to unify Indy and Bloomington and Indy and Lafayette and West Lafayette. You know. Um, uh, would be huge. I think we we've uncovered a lot of that during the strategy and yeah. the study for the strategy that yeah. like these are a lot of really important gems we've discovered that we kind of forgot about and even even in Indianapolis too. Yeah. Um how do we surface those and and, and highlight them? Yeah, yeah. Um okay, I just have a couple you've been I, I always say on this show you've been more than generous with your time because it always goes No, over, you're good. I, I think, enjoy I enjoy I talking to you about it. Th- this is great because it, it feel like I feel like I know you pretty well, but this fills in a lot of gaps in the timeline, <laughs> honestly. Okay, so let's embrace some controversy. So Okay. In it, one thing you and I have in common is no good deed goes unpunished, yeah. right? So like and and this impacts 
I'm, I'm different because I'm still a salaried employee. I haven't put like all my equity on the line the way a business owner has like yourself, mm -hmm. you know? And so there are times when you will stretch and contribute money and time to do something for the community and you draw fire, you know what I mean? And draw, and I feel like I, you know, we, we do too, you know, or think that. Um, and I think there's a lot of people maybe who maybe, maybe oriented more toward community work and nonprofit work that they kind of don't, this is my defense of you. They're, okay. like, they're like, I'm like, where are you going with this? They're like, it's, it's like, it's like, it's like, the guy's running a business. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah. the guys, it's like, it's like, he's not a nonprofit owner. If his concerts don't sell, he's literally out of business. You know, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? So there's, I guess the question is that tension that you feel between you're trying to, you're trying to elevate the culture of the city and certainly the, the bands here and the concerts here. But then sometimes that draws criticism from fill in the blank, you know, people in the community and things like that. How do you, how do you handle that? Um, I used to get really angry um, because it was more like, well, you don't know us and you don't know why we're doing this. And you don't, you know, how could you, how could I do this thing that we view as a good thing a supportive thing be turned into this. And so we used to get really pissed off and angry and, you know, a lot of internal conversations about it. But now I'm just like, you know what? I feel good knowing that we're doing the right thing. And then I look at my team and I go, do you guys feel good knowing that we're doing the right thing? And they're like, yeah. And it just kind of naturally works itself out. And I've, I, I, I changed my tone from getting angry to reaching out to every single person that wants to criticize us and saying, do you want to sit down and talk about it? Or do you want to, you know, sit in your recliner and post stuff on Facebook that you have no clue about, yeah. you know? Um, and then had a couple of those conversations and sometimes a few of them just go away. I think a lot of people were bored and trying to make things up, but um, at the end of the day, I feel good, you know, <laughs> venue alliances. Yeah. There was a good byproduct from that, but I didn't, I didn't pay myself. I didn't make any money. I actually right. invested money into it. Right. Music strategy. I never made a penny on that. I That's actually right. paid, we paid five or $6,000 out of our pocket to just get that going. Doesn't, not in, not including know? the expenses, hosting all this stuff. Yeah. And, so know. I'm just like, and at the end of the day, like, I don't want any credit for it. You know, it's cool that like, oh, we helped to do that. Our yeah. group helped to do that. Yeah. That's how I like to think about it. But, you know, um, and that was one of those two. It was like, there's criticism down the road. I'm like, wait a minute. I, I helped do this. Like, yeah, uh, no I, good deed goes unpunished. Yeah. So you know, it's, it's just like, yeah, I, I think we're going to get, I think it's the, as the profile of the club grows and, and, you know, people are always going to view us as a target. We just always try to, you know, we try to drive straight down the middle of the road and do everything by the book the right way. Yep. Good processes, good things in place. There's different, always, different you know, genres. I mean, you've always been a champion of different genres. I know early on people would probably associate the club heavily with you know rock and americana but you've shown over the years the the diversity mm -hmm. I mean, you got to the board just the diversity of the acts is really absolutely cool. yeah. yeah i mean i mean there was a time well, i was really proud of it it didn't happen intentionally it just happened that we had you know three black artists that were grammy nominated all playing within a four or five day time frame that's cool you know and that was the first time and that's happened a lot over the years but that was the you know and i guess and, and, and talking to friends, like we should, we should highlight those things more, but uh, we just, it's just another day for us. Like we're just, it's another great show. Right. Yeah. But yeah. we actually did. We, you know, we, 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 we sent out a press release cause we were really proud of it. And, you know, I think that that things like that are important to us while they may not, the, the programming may ebb and flow and it may be happen in pockets, but having that, 
diversity yeah. is an important thing to us. Yeah. Um, I just have a couple more questions. One of them is that kind of, if you could wave a magic wand question. So for Indy to be successful and you can define success however you want, but, um, and get more wins. Cause you're like, I hate, I hate losing, <laughs> but for Indy to have the kind of national profile that is befitting of the talent here, you know, what are the types of things that would need to happen? You know, we mentioned kind of more grassroots kind of foundation of like all ages venues and creating more of that culture of when you're young, you know, and I know you're, 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 I don't want to give anything away, but you're also involved in um, standing up some really creative new, new venues. So I know new venues is part of the equation, but what's, if, if you could wave a magic wand, what, what comes to mind? I mean, the artists have to be successful. You know, they've, we have to come to a point where, there's eight to 10 artists of all different types of music that are out making a living as national touring artists on the road. Yeah. And, and that will help develop the things and the, and the energy that I think we need as a city to show that these artists are coming from here and that we've done our part yeah. to put enough things in place to get the artists to that point. Yeah. The talents there, you and I were both a part of the next up, um, you know, that, that um, grant with, um, original artists kind of honing like their live shows and stuff like that. And it's like the, te- every time, every time I see half the time I've heard of the artist, half the time I've not. But then when I take the time to go see them, I'm just like, these guys are amazing. Yeah. You know? I mean, these are things we can't manufacture. Like, I know. We can't, I know we can't create them. We can't force them. They just need to have the things around them to let them happen. Yeah. And that's the kind of the hard thing is like, we can't sit down one day and go, well, let's, let's really do all this and throw all this money at this thing. And it's like, well, uh, and in theory, that might work sometimes, but I think it's better to, like, really build the healthy, I hate to say ecosystem again, but, like, it really is an ecosystem of things. It's the clubs and the studios and the screen printers and the piano tuners and the, all the different things that happen that make that, like, a good, healthy scene where you can create. I think that's what we have to focus our attention on, um, and that's what we're going to keep uh, keep trying to do. Um, I can't. I can't go without some actual music recommendations and I'll give you a second, but I mean, these are just yeah. like, a, yeah, just, a, and it could literally just, just what's top of mind for you. And it could be, could be national artist in a record that's really top of mind for you. Or it could be an Indianapolis based artist mm-hmm. that you would, that you would want people to go listen to. Oh man. I, again, it changes every single day depending on mood. I'd say, um, we'll see this Canadian band called Arkells right now a lot. I really like them. How do you spell it? Uh, they're called the Arkells, A R K E L L S. Okay. Um, I listen to a lot of songwriter type stuff. Listen to a lot of old soul. Um, listen to some Rage Against the Machine the other day. Yeah, <laughs> just because it was a bad day. Um, but um, you know, I mean, pretty much anything that happens here. Um, gosh, I, I hate being put on the spot because so, I, I like I go back to my Spotify playlist. I'm, and I'm, gonna, I'm thinking of so who have I been exposed to lately? Tribe Soul. I saw them perform as part mm-hmm. of the next up and i really really enjoyed them native sons they've been around for a while mm-hmm. but shout out to sleepy floyd who i'm going to interview oh nice uh, for this for this show um all of his projects are great i know that's the that's what again i hate to start talking about genre because it's totally cross genre here but um uh that one of our genres that's i think is really rich is that um hip-hop jazz uh, artists, there are yeah, several. I've had I've had Clint Breeze on the show. The so. new Serious Black project, Sirius. Overslept. Yes, the Overslept project he's doing is great. Yes, Bless is you know I think they're really the 
one of the top artists that are doing it. You know, I used to do a national tour. Yep. We got a label and there's deal. Justin Vernon and, right there. We talked about Justin Vernon earlier there. Yeah, but there. that like that model. Yeah. Like you could define success, right? Was that a successful tour? Well, yeah, I hope it was because yeah. this artist went and played 15 or 20 cities. Yeah. A couple of them on sold out. They played the Bowery Ballroom to a sold out crowd with, you know, open their support slot there. And like, and then they came back and now they're back and then they're going to do it again. And they're yeah. energizing. And like that is momentum to me. And what we've always struggled with it's always been one artist at one time. Yeah. And then it's, and you know, it was this band and then it was that band, but they were never happening at the same time and we could never get two or three going at the same time. And then it just goes back to, there was no momentum. And I really hope that we can get there. That's where you see in my, and I'm in now, I'm, now I'm going to put the critic hat on, but artists less talented who blow up and, and they, and they're identified with their hometown, you know, I'm not going to name names, but right. But and then and then and then their hometown <clears throat> gains visibility, and then we see Indianapolis artists with way more range. You know, you know what I mean? I mean, at this point in time, I'd take if somebody could sell out clubs playing the Spoons a thousand tickets a night, you know, we'd take them. You right. know, right. like yeah. that. Just again, energy. Right. Yeah. Um, do you have any opinion on the TikTok generation and stuff like that? Mm-hmm. Again, I know I'm old when there are certain media that I just don't quite get you know, and sort of what that's, what, what, what that's doing to music. Yeah. I'm, I don't know. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm out of demo now too. You know, I'm 48. So I got I act like I'm 30, but I'm, you know, right. I, the reality is, and I, and I look at TikTok every day and I look at Instagram reels every day and I, wa- I watch just cause I have to, and I need to know what's happening, but I, I don't know. I mean, artists are blowing up on TikTok. You know, Warren Zeter is, is one of those that, that had a snippet of a song that everybody played behind their 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 reel or their or their story. And it happened for six months. Like that, and it, and it, it wasn't even it wasn't even a verse. Yeah. It was two lines of a verse. Wow. Twenty five million plays on this thing. Okay. The guy's like, Well, I guess I better write the rest of the song. Boom. <laughs> and then the song comes out wow. selling out eight hundred, nine hundred seaters. Uh, you know, not saying that he's not a talented artist, but like, I mean, how did that happen? Right. That wouldn't have happened before. There's no way. Know? So, I mean, it's definitely going to have influence on it. And again, I go to, I go to meta concerts and what's going to happen. That's a whole nother thing that I know people aren't really ready for. Um, I'm not ready for it. Um, but it's already happening. People are going to live shows in, in, you know, a virtual reality world. Yeah. And I think the more people I'm, I will probably, I hope this doesn't happen, but I will probably sell someone a digital beer at a concert before I die. How weird is that? Yeah. A digital yeah. beer. You're not yeah. even going to drink it. Right. You're yeah. just going to buy a yeah. token of a beer. Yeah. Is that weird? Yeah. I'm going to, but yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to watch a band not playing in person and yeah. buy a digital beer. So, I, so uh. I, I think, so I think that what, what, here's uh. what, here's the light bulb that goes on is that, so for the young people where there's so much that they've got that's virtual and their phones and stuff like that, and, and, you know, it's like, it's almost like, it's like, go have this live communal experience because the, you, you, we don't have as much of that and there's a magic there 
You know, you know what I mean? And it's almost like, this is totally sacrilegious what I'm going to say, but I've never gone into church and then an hour or so later walked out of church saying, oh, I really shouldn't have gone to church. You know what I mean? Always, yeah. And the same is true at the concert. It's like there are nights when I'm like, hey, this artist, I haven't seen, I haven't seen him or her before. And then I'm like, no, nah, I'll go check it out. And 100% of the time I walk away saying, I'm glad I saw that. Mm-hmm. Not 99% of the time, like 100% of the time. I think as long as it stays a, uh, like a group friend experience, like it's a pure thing too, where you can go together and, you know, I think that, and the music has to be good, obviously, but yeah, I think we will be able to continue to educate generations, new generations of the value of, yeah. of live music. And they will naturally feel that by going to it, but we're just going to have to make sure that we're putting it in the places where they can go to it. That's right. Right. It may not be in the same places we used to go, go see it, you know, so right. we've got to just be, be, we think that through, but yeah, yeah. it's wild, wild times to see that, uh, that next evolution of where music's going to go. Yeah. Yeah. We saw, I told this to somebody the other day. I was like, man, I saw the cassette and the CD evaporate yeah. during my, my, my growth in this industry. I started off making cassettes yeah. and they're gone. Yes. I know they make, they're making a comeback, but for the most part, they're gone. CDs are gone. Yeah. Those are two mediums that are gone. Yeah. Vinyl came back, right? Because it's, you know, collector, it's a collector, it's vintage, yeah. it's yeah. kind of unique. Um, and I think that it will. I think that it will sustain as long as they can keep manufacturing because the equipment that makes them is fairly outdated at this point. Um, but we're never going to see the CD again. Yeah. We're never going to, we're probably never going to see uh, the cassette again. Somebody who is interviewing him, Todd Rundgren, who I, I, I'm fascinated with Todd Rundgren and pe- people listening just know that, but <laughs> he said something, it was either on quest loves Post- podcast or maybe um, Rick Rubin and Malcolm Gladwell's podcast. And Todd, Todd sort of, Sort of, sh- sort of shrugged it off and said, and said, yeah, for maybe three decades, we deluded ourselves into thinking that the music business was the recorded product. But he's like, we're going back to what it's been through 2000 years of human history. And it's been a service. You show up and you play, you know what I mean? And it's a service and that's how it's been for 2000 years. You know, the yeah, li- like the that's a very t- Todd like, Rundgren thing to say. Yeah. Yeah. To- uh, totally. Uh, that, that, we, we feel like, I think that we talk about that sometimes too, that like we feel like we're a utility sometimes. Right. You know, this isn't, this isn't the water company. Right. It's going to turn it on and turn it off, you yeah, know? Yeah. Uh, but I mean, there's the thing, I mean, even through all the, even through everything, I'll end on this. I mean, it's like for you, it's, um, it's always palpable. Like you, you know, even when, when you go through a week where you've worked seven nights a week, you never lose the magic, or at least that's what I feel. Yeah. When you... Yeah. I, I, it's a, it's a weird thing. Um, it's a kind of a bug and I've always had it. And you know, there's certain people in this business, you got to be kind of a weirdo to, to do this stuff because you got to really like, sometimes you got to put your blinders on and you got to be willing to lose and you got to be, it's just all, it's just the, all the things that go into like being a, being a club owner and a promoter are, they're not for everyone. The business model is not for everyone. And so I still wake up and love it. Um, I still, I still wake up every morning and love coming here to the neighborhood. Yeah. My team where we are beat to shit to say the least, but yeah, we right. still love what we do and wouldn't trade it for anything. Yeah. Well, you and the whole team, and I've told, I, you, you gave me an opportunity to tell your team this before, but it's like you guys are great ambassadors for the city. I know a lot of people, you know, will come into town, um, you know, following an artist here, but it's like it, it's always gives me pride when they have a great experience mm-hmm. here. Um, so, anyway, I just, thanks for taking the time on an otherwise busy day. Yeah, and I will say, everybody, everybody listening to this, I hope, you know, I mean, 
definitely come to the hi-fi one of any one of the hi-fi venues but i think more than that it's like if you're looking at your night and it's live music or netflix do the right thing netflix is going to be there is always going to be there you know i mean it's almost like i know I'm, i'm sounding like a little bit of an evangelist but it's like come support the artist, but just be a part of this experience that you're not going to get anywhere else. Yeah. And step outside your comfort zone a little bit. You know, we always yeah. try to encourage people to like reach out to us. If you, if you don't know, like I want to go see a show, but I don't know what to go see. Like reach out to us. Let's have a conversation. Let's, you know, what do you like? And then we can try and pair people with a good show. Um, we, we always do that. Um, and, we're, and we're here to help ask for recommendations. Is, I mean, is there anything better than an artist that you got on the ground floor with when he or she had very few fans and then they blow up, there's like nothing better than like being on that ride, in my opinion, on that journey. Yeah. I I got, I've been fortunate to have that ride several times, but my favorite's been the Sturgill Simpson ride because he's, you know, he's been a, 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 always a, you know, I really enjoyed it early on because he was kind of a fan of our, of the blog and, and told us that and we were doing stuff with him kind of when he was just really just starting out. We, I mean, everybody knew that he was going to be, you know, he was this a, a different sound at the at, at the right time, um, but we just liked him, and he showed us respect over the years, stuck with us, um, and I don't know. I just it was fun to be a part of that trajectory. And did you, you know, think he'd be playing Saturday Night Live and headlining festivals and stuff when I, you saw I him? Mean, I knew he'd kinda, be big, but I didn't yeah. know it'd be like that. You know, yeah. I, I really I didn't. Um, and he's a humble he's a humble dude too. You know, so he probably didn't either. Um, but I was, man, I was stoked to be a part of that whole thing and, uh, appreciate him and the Tyler Childers camp and you know, yeah. running that through that way and running through the Alabama shakes and running through the Lumineers. And, you know, I, I gotta, I always revert back to those cause those are the ones top of mind that I say, but there's been a hundred of them since then. Um, and we've got another 50 or 60 of them that are in the making right now yeah. that we're trying to get help be, you know, get to that point with our little corner of the world, which is Indianapolis. So. So come, I'll add. So I'll add that to my like plea, which is, come see a great artist before he or she blows up. Yeah, that's always been the mantra. You yeah. know, big band, yeah. small club. You've seen yeah. them here first. You know, we're, we're curators of music, yep. and, and we hopefully you have a good time yep. when you're watching the show. Tell, tell your tell your kids or your nieces and nephews about it someday. That <laughs> night that you saw, I saw my morning jacket at Birdie's. It was below zero outside. There were maybe like thirty people. It was like, yeah. and it was that's just life-changing and everybody's that got was. those stories yep. I mean, yeah yep. 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 josh baker thanks a lot thanks for all you do for the city i don't tell you enough appreciate it